I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And I pledge allegiance to the Christian flag and to the Savior for whose kingdom it stands. One Savior, crucified, risen, and coming again with life and liberty for all who believe. How many of you grew up saying the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag? May I see your hand? Where were the rest of you born? How many of you grew up saying the Pledge of Allegiance as I did to the Christian flag? May I see your hand? Look around. Well, there you have it. Two loyalties. One to the national flag and another to the religious flag. One to the empire and another to the kingdom. You cannot understand the book of Revelation unless you understand this about it. It was written to seven churches, local churches. It was not written to seven periods in history. It was not written to seven nonprofit organizations. It was written to seven local churches. You can visit the remains of almost all of those seven sites even to this day. The people that were in those seven local churches, much like our church, though very, very small, found themselves torn between these two loyalties. One to the empire. They were all owned by Rome. And the other to the kingdom. There are times when you can be loyal to both entities. In peacetime, that's most of the time. But there are times when you cannot be loyal to one of them because the claims are fundamentally crossways with the other. You can try to compromise for a while with either one, negotiate if you can, but sooner or later you have to choose which loyalty is first and which one serves the other. That is the decision that every one of those members in all seven churches faced. So Revelation is not primarily a book about prophecies. It's a book about loyalties. It's not a series of visions about how the world is going to end it's a series of visions about two conflicting ideologies. And the longer you live in John's day, the more you find yourself torn in two directions. By the time Revelation was written in the mid to late 90s AD, there were two dominant stories. One of them was the story of Rome. It was more than 600 years old by the time this letter was written. 
everyone in these seven churches were steeped in this narrative. The Romans believed that Rome existed by divine providence. That is, a few years before, actually many years before, the Greek god Zeus had declared that Rome would one day rule the seas and the land and bring all nations under the dominion of Roman law, end quote. So she was there by divine providence. She owned every country surrounding the Mediterranean Sea, what is known as the Orbis Terrarum, the circle of lands. Rome had conquered either by war or by treaties and negotiations. But at the end of the day, she owned it all, and they were all loyal to her. So dominant was her influence across the world that whatever happened in Rome, the rest of the world, if Rome sneezed, <laughs> the world got a cold. At the front, of the Roman Empire was an emperor who had almost godlike authority. His birthday was a national holiday. They actually named national holidays after the birthdays of emperors. His image was on one of their coins on the other side of the same coin. You can see them today. Was an image of a local deity or a god, thus connecting forever the association between the two. Our emperor and our god are connected. Her symbol was an eagle with its wings spread wide. One historian said to signify the spread of the empire over the whole earth. Underneath the eagle, there were three pillars that upheld Roman society. One was the pillar of government that established law and order, legislation. The other was a pillar of the military that established power and conquest. They had military dispatches all over the known world. They had embassies all over the known world. The third pillar was the pillar of the market, and that stood for the bounty, the consumption, and therefore the pleasure of every Roman. As long as these three things were working together, the government with its law and order, the military with its power, protecting the interests of the government, and the market fortifying the fields with bounty and pleasure, Romans were happy most of the time. Where was religion? <laughs> All over. There was not one God, there were many. Rodney Stark lists 41 temples celebrating 16 different deities in Rome alone at the time that John wrote the Revelation. And outside of that were hundreds of little shrines. In each shrine, prayers were uttered for the life and vitality of the emperor and his family. In all seven cities where these local churches were situated, all seven cities 
had shrines to the emperor and his family. In six of the seven cities, there were imperial temples built in the name of the emperor. In five of these seven cities, there were altars with priests paid for by the government. <laughs> Burning sacrifices in the name of the emperor. Where was religion? Rome had one. It just didn't get in the way. Romans believed that if one wanted to find himself, he should look inside of himself. They believed that if you wanted to be happy, truly happy, you should consume and you should pursue your deepest desires. Follow your passions, follow your dreams. When you reach them, then you will be happy. After this life, you hope for the best in the next. Romans believed, we're not making this up. This sounds uncannily similar to you. Romans believed that tolerance was one of the primary virtues. After all, there were hundreds of religion. The last thing you wanted to do was stand up and claim that one of them was better than the others. So all religions were pretty much the same because they all came from the same primal desire and they all served the same God more or less in the end, this was the Roman way. Every member in these seven churches was steeped in those traditions. You still with me? Yes? yes. We're almost through with history. Not quite. The other story in that day was not as well known. It was the story about a poor, really peasant Galilean rabbi who went around saying outrageous things like you should forgive your enemies and you should give up your money. Everything that the Romans called for, the death of one's enemies and the collection of one's resources and the pursuit of power and of everything they called for, he said the exact opposite. So what happened was when he finally collided with Rome, as all messiahs did in his day, Rome killed him, just like they did every previous messiah. Jesus was not the first quote-unquote, Messiah crucified. You knew that, didn't you? There were literally hundreds crucified by the Romans before Jesus ever came along. He was just the latest in a long line of saviors and teachers with one distinction. His rumors were that he came back to life. Nobody in Rome believed this because it defied life as they knew it. That was not how things worked. But his believers believed it, and they believed it to the core. They went into synagogues, the heart of the Jewish religion, and began to teach 
what this Messiah had said and did. And some of the Jews even started to follow him. Their numbers grew rapidly. When the Romans heard about this, they declared his religion religio illicita, an illegal religion. You could practice any religion but this one because it was starting to socially disrupt the status quo. The people that followed the teachings of this rabbi, Alan Kreider writes in his book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, did not take to public media. They didn't stand in public circles and cause protests. They didn't shout things against the emperor. All they did was live a quiet alternative, which he calls a habitus, a collection of habits that symbolized another way, such as they met frequently in one another's homes, and they opened those homes to those who were poor and impoverished. They abstained from sex outside of marriage. They refused to retaliate against their enemies when their enemies took their land. They cited scripture verbatim in public places. Some even lifted their hands in public places to pray. They marked themselves with the sign of the cross. They gave each other the kiss of peace. They put their money, their hard-earned money, into little collection boxes, he said, whenever the people gathered. And why? So they could take care of the poor and impoverished. And as much as Rome hated this way of life, people came to it. Think about that. These early Christians lived at a time in history where there was a death sentence on you if you were ever caught professing the name of that rabbi. Many cases, there was no trial. You were executed immediately. It was a death sentence. The entire way of life that everyone followed was exactly the opposite of your way of life. And yet, for the first 150 years of history, there were more than 200 converts a day into this little religious circle. Some of those converts huddled up in little churches in seven cities owned by the Romans. There are times when the Romans and the Christians are not at odds. But the more aggressive Rome became and the more she spiraled into moral confusion, the Christians were soon enough forced to decide where their loyalties lie. Whenever someone is in a time of confusion like this, torn between two loyalties, 
between those who can give you the good life right now by giving everything that makes life comfortable and those who talk about the good life. But it seems so counterintuitive and it's certainly countercultural. Whenever you find yourself caught in between these two loyalties, you start forgetting who you are. Am I a Roman or am I a Christian? Well, yes, but, but the further they get apart, you start forgetting which one you are. So you don't answer it. You're both, you say. Then you lose your imagination. You start forgetting your story. You forgot where you came from. You forgot your way of life. And so you start to do one thing on one day of the week, and then you start to pursue all the other things that Romans pursue on the other days of the week. And you can do this for a while, but every now and then there comes a point where you have to make a decision. That's a good time for that little Galilean rabbi to show up. Because when he shows up, you remember, this is how things go. This is how you understand the world. This is the way it's all going to end. So John says, I'm a brother and a companion of yours in the patient suffering and enduring in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm suffering right with you, all seven of you local churches. I feel everything that you feel. I have the same doubts, the same confusions. He said, it was the Lord's day and I was in the spirit. But I was on the island of Patmos. And Patmos is something like an exile, an island of, like a colony where Romans would send people when they were dissidents. You didn't want to kill them. And they wouldn't compromise. So you put them on a ship and sent them to Patmos. I was an old man. My best days were over. I was separated from my family. It was the Lord's day. I was there the morning Jesus was crucified. I was there the morning he rose again. I remember vividly the things that he said. But that was more than 60 years ago. And the resurrection has gotten kind of stale. It's just a memory. There's all this talk about what this Messiah is going to do when he lands on earth. None of it's happened yet. And then I heard a voice behind me. And it was as loud as a trumpet. And I turned around to look at the voice. And I was not prepared for what I saw say that differently. I walked with this man for three years. I knew everything about him. 
lived with him. I didn't know he was all this. He had white hair and a robe that went down to the ground. He had a golden sash that came across his chest. That was the first sign. Then when I looked into his eyes, I saw what looked like fire coming out of his eyes. He opened his mouth to speak and it was like a sword that just separated everything and it sounded like the Niagara River. You couldn't hear yourself think when he talked. He had such sovereignty. He was standing in the middle of seven local churches. These were not seven ideas, seven philosophies, seven nonprofit organizations. These were seven struggling local churches. And one with that kind of authority was standing in the middle of them. And in his hand, he held the seven collective spirits, one from each one of those congregations. They were like ethoses. And he had them in his right hand. as all it took. I went over dead. I never knew this about him. I never saw this in him. When he was talking on the shore of Galilee and saying all those funny things, I thought he was strange, but I didn't know he was this. And when he got down and he let children get on his knee, I thought he was a good parent, but I did not know he was this. Now, when he stood up in the front of a boat and told the wind to shut up, I know why it listened. And when they walked him to that hill and they put him up on one of those crosses, so familiar to every one of us, we've watched Messiahs die like this for years. And when they started to say, if you be the son of God, you come down from that cross, I thought to myself, you have no idea who this man is. And now when I went to the tomb one resurrection morning and I saw the tomb empty, I thought to myself, Of course. <laughs> That's what you do if you're him. Their weapon is death. Your weapon's resurrection. And once they kill you and you come back, what are they going to do? All at once, my confusion about who God was. I'd gotten slippery trying to understand an invisible God. I got slippery. He was always a personal savior, but he never ruled the world, not like this. But that day, he cleared everything up. 
The one behind me was the creator. The one who speaks of things that are not as though they are and they come to be just because he said it. That was the one behind me. The one behind me is the pillar in the cloud. He is the shepherd in Isaiah. He is the fire in the prophet's mouth. He is the founder and creator of all seven local churches. Well, I guess you know where this is going, don't you? Every one of you in this room, like me, were raised in the story of the empire. I think some of you know the story of America better than you know the story of your Christ. You were taught to salute the eagle, but did they teach you to bow before the lamb? You revere the military, but can you name even one Christian martyr? You have faithfully paid your taxes for years, but say that you cannot afford to tithe. You defend the Constitution. But do you practice the Sermon on the Mount? Where are your loyalties? You live in a day of moral confusion, a day where you cannot walk the line much longer. You may be oblivious to this, and you may not care, but trust me, when you go to work tomorrow, everyone around you knows and everyone around you cares. Four out of five Americans believe that if you refuse to do something like serve other people on the basis of your moral convictions, you are irrelevant and extreme. Two out of three Americans, 60% believe if you try to convert another person into your belief system, you were radical and extreme. 42% of Americans, almost half of the people you work with, believe that if you ever let go of a good paying job in order to become a missionary, and God knows if you call for this from your children, you are radical and extreme. You can play this for only so long, but sooner or later, the empire becomes aggressive and things begin to spiral into moral confusion. And you find yourself on the brink saying, where do my loyalties lie? Now listen to me. We need a vision of the one who is behind us. So we no longer fear the ones who are around us like some of us 
fear. Some of us dread far more negative posts on Facebook than we worry about the word of Christ on the day of judgment. Has that once entered our minds? We need a vision of one who is not like the God of America. We need a vision of the real God standing behind us with eyes like fire and a voice like a mighty waterfall. One who was once dead but is now alive forever and ever and who holds the keys of death and hell. We need a vision of that God, a God that we say we know well, we walked with him for three years and yet when he shows up, we fall over in terror. We need a God who scares us and one who inspires us at the same time. Generations tend to sway from one side or the other. We need a vision of both, not a balance, but a blend. The one who is and who was and who is to come. That's the God that needs to show up when Christians worship today. And when he does, we will not stand up in public places and shout from our mouths or go on to Facebook and talk about all the things that are happening that we're opposing and we're against. No, 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 no. Future generations will not care what you opposed. They will care what you stood for. It isn't what you tear down. It's what you build up that the future will look at and believe in. So we need not go on all of these things and talk about convictions and talk about the things we're opposed. We need to get inside of those small communities of struggling Christians in seven churches just like ours and quietly, faithfully practice what they practice. Meet together regularly. Memorize scripture and say it in public places. Don't be afraid to pray in public. Come on, Christians. You sing the national anthem and God bless America in front of every one of your sporting events. Somebody lift their hand and pray. And cite the word. Abstain from sexual immorality until you are married. Open your homes and be hospitable to those who are poor and impoverished. Forgive your enemies. Bless them. If they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Do we not know if we kill our enemies? As Rome is fond of doing, death still wins. Your enemy is not ISIS. Your enemy is not some foreign country. Your enemy is death. And when you kill, you play right into its hands. Gather together frequently. Put your possessions into the common purse 
that other people may know. Bring your sons and daughters into the places of worship and teach them your way of life. Which will it be? Where are your loyalties? Church, in our presence this morning is one who is bigger than life. He is the first and the last. He is the only thing worth talking about, ultimately. Whatever you're working on this morning, if it's not connected to him, it'll die eventually. But if it is connected to him, it will live and it will bear fruit long after you are gone. He is the one who formed the earth. He is the one at the end of time where all disciplines, even yours, ultimately ends. He was dead and now he's alive and he's alive forevermore and he has keys to death and hell. John wrote in Revelation of a final scene. A throne, he said, with 24 elders kneeling around it. He said, um, one of the elders came to me and he said, do you know who these are who are clothed in white. Do you know where they came from? I said, sir, I do not. You are the only one who knows these things. Then that elder said to me, these are the ones who died in the tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb and he has made them white. That is why they stand in front of God's throne and they serve him day and night in his temple. And the one who sits on the throne, he will give them shelter. And they will never again be hungry or thirsty, never scorched by the heat of the sun for the lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of life, giving water. And then God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I believe in the Christian flag and in the Savior for whose kingdom it stands. One Savior, crucified, risen, and coming again with life and liberty for all who believe. And I believe in the Bible, God's holy word. I will make it a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And I will hide its words in my heart that I will not sin against God. Do you believe? Do you believe? 
Where are your loyalties? Do you believe? We're going to call on you this morning to claim and state those loyalties again, first here in public worship, but then out there in quiet circles of faithful habits where it will really matter.